One Hope Church. Hey, good morning. For those of you, for those going to their classes, they're entering through the main entrance. If you need to use the restroom this morning, please use that same um, entrance um, so we don't have the door propped open on the other side um, as it's a little bit chilly um, this morning. Um, so please help out with that. If you're listening in your vehicles this morning, 94.3 WOHC, you can turn in there and uh, for you want to crack your window, whatever you want to do, or the brave ones um, sitting uh, in the lawn chairs bundled up. So we uh, are glad that you're here this morning and we're thankful to be able to come together and to worship the Lord. Um, and to be able to do so freely um, is certainly a blessing. And we remember those around the world who will not do that freely today, but will do that at great risk to their own lives and in peril. Um, and so may God give us perspective. Um, this morning, um, before we even pray, I'm going to ask the Lord this morning as we pray, uh, I'm going to ask him to um, only let me say what he wants me to say, that that uh, preach his word in God's perspective and not my own um, opinion on things. But I can guarantee you that, you know, if we preach from the word of God, the word of God will offend every single one of us. In fact, I would say that if you are not occasionally, it doesn't matter who's preaching. If you are not at least at times offended by what is preached, then preachers are not doing their job. You should be offended. You're in your in your flesh. There are times when you should be offended. I'm no different. When I read the word of God, there are times that I should be offended. I should be convicted. I should realize that something in my own heart needs to change or my own mind needs to change or my own perspective needs to change. God doesn't need to change. God's word doesn't need to change. The change has to happen in here. And yes, we live in a world full of problems and we all want to try to do our part to help solve those problems. But listen, folks, if we don't solve the problems in here, and in here, if we don't solve the problems of our own hearts and our own minds, how can we help a world? See, we have, we're going to talk about this this morning. We have to see as God sees. And we can only see how God sees if we are saturated in the word of God and in prayer. That's the only way you're going to see how, the, how God sees instead of how the world sees is if you're saturated in the word of God and in prayer. This morning, I've, I've, I have felt the need to call another audible, I, I, Lord willing, I'm not going to say I promise, I'm just going to say Lord willing, we'll get back to Genesis soon. There is so much good stuff in there and so much stuff we need to hear and so much stuff in, in the rest of Genesis that we read that is going to offend But this morning, I just really felt the need for the words of Jesus. The teaching of Jesus. By way of reminder, as the scripture says, for us this morning, the words of Jesus. That's what you need this morning. That's what I need this morning. The words of Jesus. And they will convict. Why? Because they are the words of Jesus. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come to you now and we ask for your help. In our own hearts. In our own minds. In little One Hope Church. In this state, in this nation. In this world, Lord, we need your help. Please use your word by the power of your Holy Spirit 
to do its work in our hearts and in our minds. Lord, please don't let me say anything you don't want me to say this morning. Please also don't let me fail to say anything you do want me to say this morning. But Lord, I pray that when this is said and done this morning, people wouldn't be thinking about my words, but your word. Your words, dear Jesus, would do its work in our hearts and in our minds. Convict us, cleanse us, purify us, we pray, dear Jesus, this morning, in your precious name. Amen. Got a passage from Matthew 5 and a passage from Luke 14 this morning. Matthew 5 begins, And seeing the multitudes, he went up on a mountain. And when he was seated, his disciples came to him. Then he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness, for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when they revile and persecute you and say all kinds of evil against you falsely for my sake. Rejoice and be exceedingly glad. For great is your reward in heaven for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Listen to this, friends. You are the salt of the earth. But if the salt loses its flavor, how shall it be seasoned? It is then good for nothing but to be thrown out and trampled underfoot by men. You are the light of the world. A city that is set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do they light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a lampstand. And it gives light to all who are in the house. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. Amen. There's just a couple notes I want to make on that. The Lord will do His work in us 
and through us. But it requires a humility on our part. It requires purity of heart and a mercy on our part. It desires a, it, it requires a, a desire to be a, a peacemaker and to be meek. These are things that are necessary on our part. We can only do that through the strength of God. We can only do that with the help of God. Folks, we need to hunger and thirst for righteousness. This morning, do we have a hunger and a thirst for righteousness? I pray it would be so. Jesus said, they're going to revile and persecute you. They're going to say all kinds of evil against you falsely for my sake. And then he tells us in that to rejoice and to be glad. For great is your reward in heaven. It's an eternal perspective. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. You're not alone. And this isn't new. Generation upon generation. But then he says this. He says, you're the salt of the world. But if the salt loses its flavor, how shall it be seasoned? It's then good for nothing but to be thrown out and trampled underfoot by men. Now, there's a couple things in there to note. And, and we're going to hit the same thing Jesus says in the same concept in, in Luke 14. When he says you're the salt of the earth, you know, salt is an extremely stable compound. Extremely stable. How does it get corrupted? Well, it gets mixed with other things. It's mixed with impurities. And then notice it doesn't say that God throws you out. It says it's good for nothing from the you know from the world's perspective that the world throws you out and tramples underfoot if you get mixed in with it. Because you see, then they see the hypocrisy. And they throw you out. Even though they themselves are doing the same or worse. You see, but it's the hypocrisy part. It's the fact that you've said you're a follower of Jesus and then do what they do. That's what causes the corruption and get thrown out. We're to be the light. We're to be the city that is set on a hill. So they can see our good works and glorify our Father in heaven. Again, it's not for our glory. It's not for our boasting or for our pride, but so that they would see that following Jesus does make a difference in how you live and how you treat people and what your priorities are. And that because you have then been a blessing to others, they will turn and give praise to God. That's the goal. In Luke 14, we find there are multitudes of people following Jesus and Jesus is going to put it to the multitude and saying, basically, are you here for the right reasons? So I, I'm going to read this from Luke 14, verse 25. It says, now great multitudes went with him. And he turned and said to them, if anyone comes to me who and does not hate his father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, and yes, yes, in his own life also, he cannot be my disciple. And whoever does not bear his cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. 
For which of you intending to build a tower does not sit down first and count the cost, whether he has enough to finish it? Lest after he laid the foundation is not able to finish, all will, will see it and begin to mock him, saying, This man began to build and was not able to finish. Or what king going to make war against another king does not sit down first and consider whether he is able with 10,000 to meet him who comes against him with 20,000? Or else while the other is still a great way off, he sends a delegation and asks conditions of peace. So likewise, whoever of you does not forsake all that he has cannot be my disciple. Safe to say, some of that multitude no longer followed Jesus after that day. Because he gave them a hard word. See, he gave them words that convicted them and that offended them. You see, the crowds wanted to follow Jesus a lot of times because of what they thought Jesus could do for them. Yes, he's an amazing teacher, but there's going to be these miracles. People are going to get healed. People are going to get fed. I want to see that. I want to be part of that. Now Jesus says this. Oh, wait, wait a second. And Jesus continues that same thing. He says, salt is good, but the salt has lost its flavor. How shall it be seasoned? It is neither fit for the land nor for the dunghill, but men throw it out. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Something I need to explain in this passage. Because Jesus is not asking his followers to sin or to break the law. And actually, back in Matthew 5, he says, Do not think that I came to destroy the law of the prophets. I did not come to destroy or to, not to destroy, but to fulfill. He, he was not telling his disciples to, to break the law of. You know, honor your father and mother. Scripture tells us that's the first commandment with promise, right? But what he's talking about when he says, does not hate his father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, of his own life also, he's using it, the terminology, he's using it in a comparative way. But that should not lessen the force of it in our lives. It's a com- on a comparison level. And I want to make some comparisons this morning and some modern applications to this. But th- th- that question that is there is basically, if you are pushed to a decision between your family and Jesus, which will you pick? If you are pushed to a decision between your possessions and Jesus, which will you pick? If you are pushed to a decision between your career and And Jesus, which will you pick? And remember, the disciples that Jesus called, they left their professions. They had to leave their professions. That was a real thing they had to do. They had to leave their possessions. That was a real thing they had to do. They had to leave their families. That was a real thing they had to do. And even today, people are put with these decisions. Um, My wife's reading a book um, called Hearts of Fire, currently. Um, Stories of of modern women of of great faith who've suffered for the name uh, of Jesus. There's one young young girl Bernima in Bhutan her father was you know, the area witch doctor her sister and her sister's her older sister and older sister's husband come to be followers of Jesus and they tell her about Jesus and she becomes a believer of Jesus and she says I need to tell I have to tell mom and dad 
She's not but like 12 years old. And her older sister says, I don't think that's a great idea. She said, no, I have to tell mom and dad. So she tells mom and dad and she gets kicked out of the house. She goes and lives with her sister and her brother-in-law, but then there's persecution arises in the area and they need to flee. So they're going to flee to Nepal and they have to travel through northern India and robbers come upon them and, and beat everyone in their group. Take everything except for she had a little money that was hidden that they didn't find. They were able to use that to get a hire a truck and make it to Nepal. And they're in a refugee camp. And there they begin to learn the local language. And they begin to share Jesus with people in that camp. And then they, they meet some believers from villages around. And they're like, let's go visit them. And then when we go out, we're learning the language. Let's share with more people in this area. And so they share the gospel of Jesus. And then they get arrested. And as a young teenager, she's put in prison. A three-year sentence. Thankfully, from pressure from the international community, she ended up being in prison for about 17 months. And she said that, uh, you know, fortunately, in, in that case, while they were threatened, you know, the worst that could have happened did not happen. But they had to listen to others, you know, the men being beaten almost to the point of death. For Jesus. And at times when the question came, will we be silent? Will we say that we don't believe this anymore just so that they'll stop persecuting us? The answer of that young woman was no. I must share. You see, the words of Jesus played forth in an ultimate reality for her as she had to leave her father and mother. As she had to suffer. But she can also rejoice and be exceedingly glad for great is her reward in heaven. You see, the question for us folks this morning is, if you have to leave everything, will you follow Jesus? If you have to give up everything, if you can't, by the end of the day, you no longer have a house. You no longer have your electronics, you no longer have your vehicles, would you gladly trade all of those in order to continue to follow Jesus? Would you still follow Jesus if that was the cost? If you were going to be beaten in the street, would you still follow Jesus? See, that's a question for you, it's a question for me. It's the question that Jesus puts to us. And these things have happened throughout history. And they're happening today around the world to our brothers and sisters in Christ. So when we think we are making sacrifices... Let's put it in perspective. But here's the big issue. The big issue is Jesus had first place in our hearts above all else. 
Salt is good, but if salt has lost its flavor, how shall it be seasoned? I'm going to talk in, in generalities a little bit this morning. You know, people are this week are all um, worried about America. Folks, I'm much more worried about the church. And, and I've been much worried about the church for a long time. And that does make a difference in America. There's an influence. But if the salt has lost its flavor, how shall it be seasoned? You see, in the year 2000, 45% of Americans met Barna. Okay, so there's Barna research, and they research and do statistics on the state of Christianity of the church of these you know sort of things, but I'm I'm gonna just just understand what I'm saying here as I say it. If you're not normally a statistics person, please just hang in there with me for a minute and and let these sink in. But in 2000, 45 percent of Americans would meet Barna's. Hear what I'm saying? Incredibly low standards for a quote unquote practicing Christian. Okay incredibly low standards. But 45% of Americans would have met that in the year 2000. In 2020, that number dropped almost in half to 25% of Americans, again, meeting that incredibly low standard of a quote-unquote practicing Christian. Meanwhile, those professing atheism and agnosticism has increased from 11% to over 20% in that same time. Now, those statistics are bad, but hold on a minute. They get a whole lot worse. They get a whole lot worse. In 2020... 6% of Americans have what is considered a biblical worldview. Still, again, Barna Research, but 6%. So this is where the standard, you know, from professing Christian moves up a a, a bit. Okay. 6% have a biblical worldview. So that number is bad. It gets worse. It gets much worse. See, for 18 to 29-year-olds that percentage goes down to 2%. 2% of 18 to 29-year-olds in the United States of America have a biblical worldview. And, and just to give you an idea of like what sort of questions are like biblical worldview is like, is the Bible your primary source for like moral authority? That's the type of question. Okay. Are there absolute rights and wrongs? That's a question. Um, Was Jesus sinless when he was on earth? Do you you know that almost 50% of those who claim to be quote-unquote evangelical Christians answer that question wrong? But whether Jesus was sinless or not? Are we kidding? Over half, about half, sorry, about half, get that one wrong. Can a person be accepted by God by just basically being a good person? These are the types of questions on a biblical worldview that only 2% of 18 to 29 year olds pass. And again, knowing the right answers doesn't even make a person a believer. But 2% of 18 to 29 year olds have a biblical worldview. So while that number is 6%, now 
unless there is a tremendous revival, that number will decrease and continue to get worse. Now, that's, I mean, you see, what we have to understand is true faith in Jesus among a group of people, like, it can die in one generation. You know, you see revivals. I, I was many, many years ago I was in Wales, and, you know, there are church buildings everywhere, and there was a Welsh revival where there was not, you know, there are meetings of the church all, all the time, and people couldn't get in the doors. People were looking through the windows out in the, you know, yards, and like they had to go out into the fields. And today, you know, those buildings, because that's not the church, those are just buildings, but those buildings are broken down, or they're community centers, or they're some other religion. They lost it all. In a couple of generations. But here's the positive side is that there can be revival at any time. But sometimes it's it's helpful to understand so we don't repeat the same mistakes. What are the comorbidities? We've heard that word a lot here with COVID, right? What are comorbidities of the situation? What are the comorbidities of the church? We'll put these in quotes, but Christian nationalism, it's an oxymoron sort of situation because you can't have Christian and nationalism together. They really don't work. But that's one. We've seen some outcroppings of that here recently and one of the things that saddened me, maybe saddened me most of, well, one of the things that, that definitely seriously saddened me on the situation that happened in D.C. here this last week was when I was you know, watching the events unfold and actually saw a Christian flag being carried in the Senate. A Christian flag. See, a person thinking that through political power they can uh, affect things and, and, and create the sort of outcome they want to have. See, the problem with Christian nationalism is it largely, is it primarily looks for a, a political solution to spiritual problems. Primarily looks at a political solution to a spiritual problem. That's what Christian nationalism does. It doesn't matter whether it's our country or any other country. Hear me fully on that. I'm not saying that we shouldn't vote and be involved in politics and these things. As followers of Jesus, we are to be good citizens and to do you know, our duty. And we happen to have the privilege that most followers of Jesus throughout history have not had, which is to live in a democracy and to have some vote and some say in the laws of a nation. That's a very unusual thing for followers of Jesus to have historically. In most cases throughout history, followers of Jesus, you know, just like take what is given. To have some say in it and have some positive influence is a is a blessing, and, a, and I'm certainly not saying we shouldn't be involved in that because we, we should. But it has again to be limited in comparison to how much we love Jesus. Our political stuff has to look like hate. Okay, so whatever party, name whatever party in your head that you most closely associated with. Okay, so if somebody says, well, so-and-so is this, but compared to how much that person loves Jesus, they, they hate that. Do you see what I'm saying? Just like compared to how much a person loves Jesus, they hate themselves and their own family. The comparison that is used there. Again, same type of sort of thing with your job. Name your job. It's like, hey, 
Edward is an electrician. He loves being an electrician. He loves doing a good job at that for God's glory. But compared to how much he loves Jesus, he actually hates electricity. <laughs> he hates being he hates being an electrician. Comparison again to how much he loves Jesus. Whatever your deal is there, right? Again, I, I do think just as a point of, of wisdom, of something you do think about, I think it is better for followers of Jesus to be independent because then you don't have to justify the evils because that's your team. Okay? You don't have to justify the evils that are done because that's your team and you have to defend this. Okay? And, and, and listen, I'm going to really say this. If whatever you, and, and even if you're not part of the party, however you voted in the last election or if you had voted how you would have voted, if you don't see major problems in that deal, that's a problem. If you voted or would have voted Republican and don't see major issues, that's a problem. If you voted or would have voted Democrat and don't see major issues of evil, that is a big problem. Because either way you go on that and and, and listen, the problem with being so politically minded is that your salt will get corrupted. And you see, the enemy doesn't care if your salt gets corrupted by moving you to the right or moving to your the left, as long as your salt gets corrupted and you can get thrown out and trampled underfoot by men. See, what the enemy wants is for your salt to get corrupted. He don't care how it happens. But Christian nationalism and Christian liberalism, again, these are both oxymorons. are comorbidities in the church. On the liberalism side of there's no standard for what God has said is sin, is sin. A removing of the authority of the word of God over one's life and beliefs. That's death. That is spiritual death. That is spiritual corruption of your salt. It destroys. Nationalism has destroyed one segment of the church. Liberalism has destroyed another segment of the church. They're brutal. Stay away from them. Centered, focused on Jesus and his word and on his truth. But listen, folks, if you start justifying sin, you see, and, 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 the, and this is the thing about it. You'll say, well, liberalism has only affected like the really liberal churches, you know, the ones that are just like community clubs that tell you whatever you want to believe is fine. And, you know, you can get to heaven by just, you know, just be a, a somewhat of a, you know, people are basically good and be somewhat of a decent person. OK, and you'll be fine with God, right? What does scripture say? All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. For the wages of sin is death. Eternal separation from God. But you see, that has infiltrated the entire church. How do we know that? Well, pornography is not really that big of a deal. Well, female sex is not really that big of a deal. Well, watching those things on TV, not that big of a deal. Gratuitous violence, not that big of a deal. see it's infiltrated and affected and on the other side that nationalism that's also affected on the other side as well again political look for political solutions to spiritual problems
So Christian nationalism, Christian liberalism, Christian materialism. Where people want to build their own kingdoms, but where do they learn to do it? You see, the, the church has said it's okay to spend money on yourself with no limitations. Because when the churches throughout the United States of America have massive buildings, massive programs, and give pennies to the work of God around the world, They've basically told everybody that you can live the American dream to its fullest and then you give your pennies. You give the pennies of your wealth and you give the pennies of your time. And the church in the United States of America has largely set that example for its people. You can't expect churches that aren't sacrificial and is giving to produce people that are sacrificial in their giving. Christian materialism. And if persecution arises in this country, people are going to be sad that they lost their buildings And their sound systems and whatever else. And the question is, to be more sad about that or more sad about losing freedom to meet and worship God? This last one. And, and this isn't an exhaustive list. You can add to it. Christian Entertainment-itis. I made up a word. No. Whatever. But. In the past couple of weeks, I've had multiple conversations with people. Who, oh, we go to such and such church because our kids have a good time there. You see, we've been trying that now for about 40 years. We've been trying that now for about 40 years. That we're somehow going to entertain kids into being lifelong followers of Jesus. Now think, think about that. We're going to entertain kids into being lifelong followers of Jesus. Well, they will choose the hard and difficult things when pressure comes, we're going to entertain them toward that solid foundation in Jesus. We're going to entertain them. Folks, I can tell you what entertaining as a primary purpose of the church has accomplished in the last 40 years. 2% of 18 to 29 year olds with a biblical worldview. That's what that's accomplished. That is what that has accomplished. 2%. When you go from 12% to 6% to 2%, you might want to stop and reevaluate and say, Maybe what we're doing isn't working. Two percent. And if the church doesn't radically change, those numbers will not improve. Two percent. See, from two percent, then you go, you know, next is 1% and then one half of 1% and then one tenth of 1%. Like that's 
that's where we're headed in terms of a biblical world view. We're not going to entertain our way out of it. Now, I'm going to be fair. Because I don't think that following Jesus should be boring. I don't think that young people should be bored out of their minds. Okay, so we do need creativity. We do need um, some, some energy. But the primary focus has to be to make disciples of Jesus Christ. That know and love Jesus and know the word and know God's perspective and can stand up and say, no, this is right and this is wrong. And and I know it because God's word says so. And I can tell you where in God's word it says so. And I have some of that of God's word hidden in my heart so that I might not sin against him. Because if the goal is just how many people we can get there, See, there's a, there's a lot more than 2% of 18 to 29-year-olds in the United States of America sitting in buildings this morning saying, okay, we're here. The goal has to be to make disciples. And that has to influence what is done and how much time is spent on fun and how much time is spent on serious Again, it's not that you can't have fun, but when it's 95% fun and 5% serious, if that, then you end up with 2% of 18 to 29 year olds having a biblical worldview. Now, if you go 80, 20, we got 20% fun for young people and we got 80% serious, good to go. You, you might even could get away with 50-50. But the problem was we've just done so ridiculous. So ridiculous. And we have basically entertained a generation out of the church and out of the kingdom of God. Now. Like, that's all really, really crazy, super negative. That's really super negative. Let's be encouraged. I want to be encouraged as we finish here, okay? 6% of our country is still 21 million people. That's a lot of grains of salt. 6% of people with a biblical worldview. That's 21 million people. That's a lot of grains of salt. Even 2%. We get down all the way to 2%. Well, that's still 7 million people. That's a lot of grains of salt. Now, if you got seven, even 7 million grains of salt that are pure, that haven't been thrown out and trampled underfoot by men because they've lost their testimony because of their hypocrisy and ridiculousness and everything else and lack of biblical view of the world, you could do a lot. 7 million people. That's a, there's a lot of, that's a lot of people for the Holy Spirit to work through. It's a lot of grains of salt. So in the big picture of things, again, that question we asked ourselves, would you rather have, I'm just asking even for your own for your own dining room table. Would you rather have one salt shaker, but it had pure salt in it? Or would you rather have like, you know, a 50 gallon barrel of salt, but it was all corrupted? Well, I know for my food, 
Give me that little salt shaker. I'll take that. We can refill that when it gets used up or whatever, right? But I'm not interested in that 50-gallon barrel of corrupted salt. So the question for us is, look, you and I, before the Lord, we have a responsibility, not in our human strength, not in our flesh, but asking God to help us and in the power of the Holy Spirit to walk according to the calling with which you were called. To put Jesus first above all else, that your love for Jesus, comparative sense, there's hate for everything else because there's so much love for Jesus. That you won't allow yourself to be corrupted by nationalism or liberalism or materialism or entertainment-itis. That you will say no to all of those things and anything else that would hinder your walk with the Lord. And say, above all and everything else, say what you will about me, but I'm going to follow Jesus. That's my number one. And nothing is close. My number one is to follow Jesus. Nothing else is close. You see, you and I, unless the Lord does something miraculous and it was his will and it's probably, listen folks, it's just probably not our going to be us that's used in this way to go and like revive the entire church of God. So sometimes we think big and we get discouraged, but, but here's how we have to think. Is Jesus truly the one hope of one hope church? And is he our love above all so much higher than anything else? And, and the reality, folks, is that only happens if that's true in your life and my life. In lives of the other people in the vehicle with you or in the chair next to you, the car next to you, whatever it is, like that has to be true in our lives. Because you see, here's the thing. You and I can't fix the United States of America. You and I can't fix the church. You and I can't fix Athens. You and I can't fix hardly anything. But what can we do? We can ask God to fix what's in our own minds. And first we can ask God to fix what is in our own hearts. See, that's the type of change that is real. And that can happen even this morning. You see, the thing for that to happen is you don't have to wait for anybody else. You don't have to wait for the church of the United States of America to get its act together. You don't have to wait for the United States to get its act together. You wait for either of those, you might be just waiting the rest of your natural life. You don't have to wait for that. I mean, you're going to have to wait for that. It's probably not, you know, keep on waiting. You pray for, and pray for it. Certainly. Work towards it. Certainly. But what can you do right now that nobody can stop? You surrender your own mind and your own heart to the way of God. See, nobody can stop that. That's unstoppable. Except for you're the only one that can stop that in your own life. You see, because when Jesus said to the, these words to the multitude, you see, each person, see, and, and we've seen this problem time and time again, you know, mob mentality and people going with the mob or whatever, but no, I'm not hearing it. You see, because each person has a decision. See, when Jesus turned around to the mob, to the mob, to the crowd, and he gave those words that were hard to hear. You see, each person had a choice. They could follow Jesus. 
They could continue. See, Jesus didn't say, you can't. I don't want you to follow me. (laughs) He certainly didn't say that. He just gave some conditions. See, and then the people, each of them, had a decision to make of whether they were going to follow Jesus or they were going to turn around and say, nah, you see, you've asked too much. See, the scripture time and time again tells us, choose this day whom you will serve. If God is God, serve God. If he's not, then don't. Listen, if Jesus is truly the king of the universe, if he holds it all together, if he's really the one who died on the cross for our sins and rose from the dead and will return, and he is the one who has an everlasting kingdom, then follow Jesus. If you don't believe that he is, then don't follow him. Just don't. Just walk away, drive away, whatever. Say, you know, I'm done with it. I don't want to follow Jesus. I don't believe in him. If you believe that he is who he says he is, follow him. If you don't believe that he is who he says he is, don't follow him. Please don't just sit there stuck on the fence of like, eh, I mean, you know, it sounds good. Or that would be nice. Like, do or don't. That's the call that Jesus gave in Luke 14. He basically gave a, you know, follow me under these conditions or don't follow me. And what we've wanted to do is we've just wanted, again, to lower that bar so incredibly low that we're just like, let's just all say we are. Let's just all say we are. We'll just all say we're Christians and Christianity and yay, America. No, it doesn't work. Let's just say that we are. It doesn't work. And that's why, honestly, this 2% number for 18 to 29 year olds is like the least shocking thing. It's not shocking at all. It's not a surprise. Because we've been building toward this for generations. We've been building toward this. Don't let your salt lose its flavor. May this be able to be said of One Oak Church and of each person in it who follows Jesus, you are the light of the world. A city that is set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do they light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a lampstand, and it gives light to all who are in the house. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your father in heaven. Amen. And amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come to you this morning. We give you thanks for your word. Your word is truth. Jesus, you gave us hard words in Matthew 5 through 7 and hard words in Luke 14. Help us to deal with those seriously. And help us to follow you and to be salt and to be light in this world. And yes, Lord, while we want you to do everything out there in the larger church and in our nation and in the world, Lord, please, even this morning, work in our hearts and our minds. And as we take the bread and the cup this morning, Lord, help us to surrender ourselves and our ideas and any corruption that has come into our salt 
help us to throw that away so that the world doesn't throw us away and trample us underfoot as good for nothing. Help us, Lord, please. By the power of your Holy Spirit, do that work in us. Give us the faith and the courage of that young girl. Purnima in Bhutan. She traveled through India and in Nepal and in, was in prison for you, Lord. Give us that sort of fire and hunger. Lord, help us not to be the people who when you give a hard word that we would walk the other way. But we would be those who say, where else will we go? You are the one with the words of eternal life. Jesus, as we take the bread and the cup this morning, we give thanks for your sacrifice for us on the cross. And we recognize that you are holy, pure, without sin, risen from the dead, and you will return again. May we live for you, dear Jesus, in your precious name.